That's kind of how I'm going to treat this morning. We're just going to jump right into the Word. Um, if you have a Bible, you can, you can turn to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. I actually have a slide that I'm just going to leave up here that this is the actual passage that we'll be in this morning. Uh, a, a friend hand-drew this. It's a place where we've been as a church, House of Providence, for the last kind of six or seven weeks, and it's what's been on my heart. Um, and this is kind of why, and this is why I thought it's pertinent uh, to us this morning and just in general, to those that believe, and if you've believed for a long time, or if you don't believe and you're just a skeptic and you're kind of angry at God, or you just don't know who God is or you don't care, uh, that this is one of these foundational passages in all of Scripture. Um, A.W. Tozer said this, he said that the root of all sin The root of all sin begins in our minds when we have the suspicion that God is not good. When that sneaking suspicion climbs into our brains and goes, you know what? God isn't good. And when that happens, we kind of distance ourselves. Or we can kind of treat him like we're not in relationship with him or that he doesn't want relationship with us. If you think about the very beginning of the story of Scripture, what is that first It's not even a temptation. It's the first question that's posed to Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? That's what Satan comes out of. He comes with this question. He plants this seed of doubt going, maybe God is holding out on you, right? He doesn't want you to be like him. This little fracture, this little crack, this little thought that goes, yeah, maybe God isn't looking out for me. Maybe he isn't good. And that's where you see, that's why a tozer can say the root of all sin begins when we start to doubt the goodness of God. And so when I look at Vancouver and Portland, when I look at the U.S. in general, in my mind, in the conversations I have with my neighbors and friends, it feels like there's, there's a lot of caricatures about who God is. That if, if I was to ask someone on the street, what is the Christian God like, would they say good? Or if I said, what are Christians like? what would they say? Would good be the first thing that popped into their minds? I I had this conversation. I've been waiting for a conversation for a while. Good, good friends that don't believe the way that I believe, don't believe in Jesus, don't believe in Yahweh. Uh, And they know that I'm a pastor, and people think that it's fascinating. At first, when they find out that you're a pastor, they treat you a little bit like the plague, right? They don't want to get to know you. It's just kind of awkward. They stop cussing. Just things like that, right? That's the first initial response. But then once they kind of get over that hump and they start to ask you questions, they get really interested. They want to know, like, so what is all the weird stuff that happens at church? You know, or like, what's it like to be a young pastor preaching to older people? I say, it's great. I just hammer them all the time. No, that's not what I say. It's terrible. But they they get really interested and kind of slowly they work up this courage to start asking more and more about faith and about Jesus. And so I'm in my backyard with my wife, two good friends, and we're sharing a bottle of wine. And they finally, I can see, work up the courage to start saying, hey, so what's it like being a pastor? Like, what do you have to deal with? Do you have any just really weird stuff that you can tell us? And I'm like, I'm not going to say anything, right? That was the husband. The wife wasn't saying that, right? She was like, no, no, don't tell us. Don't tell us. But as the conversation kind of started unfolding, they started asking questions about what what was it that I believed and why did I believe? And it started from like Adam and Eve, right, to Sodom and Gomorrah, all these kind of major like linchpins that people think about when it comes to God and Jesus. And she's like, well, well, just this, like, so the the point, so 
you believe um, like Adam and Eve were in the beginning and that basically everything went wrong and it's the woman's fault, right? Is that the, like, and it was a serious, she's like, that's what you believe, right? That it was women's fault for the whole world. And I'm like, no, that is not what I believe. You know, and they're just normal folks living their life. I mean, but that's the caricature that's living in their head and in their heart, that that's what Christianity is telling the world, right? That women screwed up the world. And it's kind of funny, some of you snickered, but the, the, the reality is, is that a lot of people have these kind of twisted images of Christianity and of God. That it's a hard thing to kind of stay on this who God is in his essence, in his purity. If you think about a caricature, you know, think about the cartoons, the political cartoons, right? When they're, when they're drawing a picture of President Obama and he's got the giant those Dumbo ears, Right? You can kind of, it looks kind of like him, but it's, that's not really what he looks like. Or George Bush with just the pinhole eyes, wee bitty eyes, right? It's a caricature of what he looks like, but that's not really what he's like. And it feels like that's what kind of is floating out in the world. We have these caricatures, whether it's because of media or whatever reason, we have these caricatures of who God is in our hearts. And for us, even as believers who's been, who have been following Christ, who have been following God for a long time, I think that we have caricatures in our own hearts. Do we really believe that God is good to us, that he actually cares about me? And so it's really interesting, right? Because Ravi Zacharias would say, how do you reach a generation that listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings, right? When the most, I was thinking about this on the drive over, I don't know why. When the most popular thing in all the internet, the wealth of information that we have on the internet, when the most popular thing is cats doing weird things, you know, and it's like that's what people want to see. Give the people what they want to see. Cats playing guitars and on pianos and dancing or whatever it is and having cheeseburgers, whatever it is, like that is what people want on the internet. Right? A generation that literally just listens with its eyes, that's image-driven, and thinks with its feelings. How in the world could we ever communicate the fullness of who God is in an internet meme, right? In a little chalkboard saying, like, could we ever get a picture? Could we communicate that to correct the caricatures that are out in the world? It could kind of seem daunting, and yet I was brought to this passage by a professor of mine. I think he's taught here, Gary Brashears. He's saying this is one of the most neglected verses in all of Scripture, but the funny thing is it's the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. It's what everyone circles back to. Think about this morning, right? Here you go. What, what were the words that we were singing this morning through all the worship songs? God was gracious, compassionate, faithful, loving, like, these are the things that we circle back to. It's this vision. And this is out of the mouth of God himself. When God says, this is who I am, this is why it's brilliant, it's not someone else saying, um, tell me what God is like. This is God passing over one of his servants and saying, I'm going to tell you who I am. Right? This person is Moses. And Moses is at this crisis point in, in leadership. And he's crying out, he's saying, God, I know that you know me, but I need to know who you are. I need to know your name. I need to know what you mean. 
in the Hebrew if someone told you your name, right? What do you mean? Who are you? What is your essence? And so God hides Moses in the cleft of this rock. He says, I'm going to pass over you, and I'm going to tell you my name. This is my name. This is what I mean. This is who I am. God describes himself. And so we should, our ears should kind of perk up going, what does God say when, when God is talking about himself? It's his self-disclosure statement. This is what's interesting, because a lot of times, you guys are familiar with this, Ken's just a philosophy head, right? And a lot of times when we start, when we, when we begin with who God is, we go to philosophy. He's omnipresent, he's, om, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omni-whatever, om, all the omnis, right? That this is what God is like. So we're trying to grasp, could God make a rock bigger than himself? You know, these kind of crazy, like, how big is big? How big is too big? He's as big, whatever, right? This is where we start. But when God talks about himself, when God describes himself, he doesn't say, I'm all-powerful. He doesn't start with the omnis. He says, this, this is who I am. I'm gracious and compassionate. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty. This is the passage that we'll be in. This is when God says this. If you're struggling with who he is, if you have a caricature of who he is in your mind, neighbors, this is the passage. You can write it on your chalkboard. You could memorize this. This is who God is. When someone says, no, this is what your God is like. He's this angry, judgmental, crazy killing babies, whatever it is, Old Testament nightmare. You say, no, when God describes himself, he says, I'm gracious and I'm compassionate. Slow to anger. This is who he is out of his own mouth. And so oftentimes in Scripture, God sends prophets just to reestablish this truth. He sends messages to say, go help my people understand this once again. And so my question is this. Is this the conception that you have about God? And is it the, the conception that other people have about us? If this is our God, is this is what people think we're like? Oh yeah, Christians, they're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. Is that what they're like? Or is it more like Christians, bitter and judgmental? It's almost like the exact reverse, right? Concerned with making sure who's guilty stays guilty, Stuck up, whatever. That's how people think. I'm not saying that's what Christians are like, but often people think this is what Christians are like. This is the caricature they have. And so I think it's important. And so this morning, we're literally just going to take each one, just kind of parse it out, each little part of who God is, and kind of just soak in it. And hopefully you can just pick one and say, you know what, this one was for me this morning. But let it kind of re readjust the caricature in our own hearts and also for those that we live next to. He starts with this. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. In the Hebrew, we're going to get into the Hebrew, it literally says, Yahweh, Yahweh. And what he's saying there, right, Yahweh, literally means I am. So he says, I am, I am. This is the divine name. He utters this. When he's revealing who he is to Moses, he says, I am that I am. Whatever character traits he has, he is those always. Whatever traits he possesses, he is those traits always. 
never changing. And this is what he says at the beginning, I am who I am and I never change. This is not what we could say. I could say to you, I am what I am sometimes, right? That's kind of the best that we as humans can say. Like, I'm nice sometimes. I'm funny sometimes, not all of the time, right? I'm compassionate sometimes. This is not the case with God. He says, whatever it is that I am, I am that always, never ending. This is who I am at my essence forever. So he utters this. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am that I am. And the first thing he says is, I'm gracious and I'm compassionate. This is the first thing he says. This is what I want you to know that I'm going to reveal about who I am. I'm gracious and I'm compassionate. So first word I'm going to look at is compassionate. The word in the Hebrew is rahum, and it means full of tender sympathy. This is the first thing that God says. When you think about me, think of me as a God who is full of tender sympathy. Right? Just like a mother or father feels sympathy for their child. Psalm 103.13 says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As a father shows compassion to his children. It's this idea of someone who is stronger or more superior, of greater advantage, who has tender sympathy for the other. Right, this is hitting me at a whole new level with a little kid. Right, I have this little son and now I feel this tender compassion for my son. Especially right now because he's teething. Right, and if you're a parent, you can sympathize and feel tender compassion for me. Because as soon as you get to that schedule, it's like, yeah, they're sleeping solid. It's amazing. They're sleeping through the night. It's so good. Then you have this, the T word, right? So one of my friends wants to make a shirt that says, teething ain't easy, right? Because it's not. It's not easy on anyone in the house. And if you don't have a kid, you're like, whatever. I don't like hearing about kids' stories. I'm young. I don't need to hear about that. Just this is what teething is. It's giving birth to little teeth, right? That's what it's like for a kid, right? These little sharp little objects coming out, just pushing through their gums. It's like labor for teeth. That's what it's like. It hurts, And they act like they're in labor, right? The kids are just screamy and whiny, and they get fevers, and their nose runs. It's just a nightmare, right? Your little kid that's so sweet turns into this Tasmanian devil, right, that's just eating things. Not eating things, just chewing on anything, right? Grabbing anything, teething. And they're in pain, and a lot of times, they actually kind of writhe in pain. And so when I see my son, I go, I wish he, he, he didn't have to go through this. I have tender compassion. I'm like, buddy, I am so sorry. You should cry out to God. It's his fault. I don't know why he planned it this way. I wish you just came out with them too. But my heart goes out to him. It's full of tender sympathy. I feel for him. I feel his pain. And so God says, my posture towards you is one of tender sympathy, of compassion. He feels for you. This is the one we love just to keep at distance. Like, no, I know God loves me, but he doesn't really like me. I I sat in a room with Ken, I think, at a church with just full of elders, right? And what do you, the question was, what do you think of? What do you think God thinks of you? And to a T, everyone's like, yeah, I think he's disappointed in me. 
Right? No one is too, too high and lofty for this. We all feel like God doesn't like us. Yeah, he loves us. He just puts up with us. And God says, no, the first thing is I feel tender sympathy, like a father looks at his child. That's how I feel about you. In Hosea 11.8, he says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender when he's thinking about his kids. You know that moment when you're looking at something and your heart just recoils and you just get warm and fuzzy? That's literally what it means. He is full of tender sympathy. This is just an emotional posture. He hasn't done anything yet, right? But it doesn't end here. He says, I'm also gracious. And this is the truth about graciousness. To be gracious is an action, right? You all know that. You can get stirred up and feel, especially at Antioch, where you got justice all the time coming at you. And you just, your heart goes out to people that are hurting and you feel tender compassion. And then you go home and watch TV for the next four days, right? No, that's not what you do. But that's kind of it. You can, you can feel compassion and choose to do nothing with it. But to be gracious is to act on that compassion, is to feel and then to move to meet that need. It's not just to feel, it's to respond, to give. So in the case of teething, I see my little man, he's writhing in pain, he's just hurting, I feel compassion, and I go get this little miracle drug called Origel, which is just numbing stuff, right? And I squeeze a little bit on my finger, and I put it on his gums, and he just kind of relaxes, right? I don't just sit back and be like, hope you get better, buddy. Right? I have this tender compassion and then I act. I do something about it. I help ease the pain. Which is, a, is an option as a parent, right? You can feel, as a person, in general, we're faced with this all the time. We feel compassion, but it's a whole nother ball game to act. Right? To be gracious costs you something. We kind of lose that. Like grace is, oh, it's grace, grace, whatever. Grace costs you something. Because it's an action. You have to do something. And this is what God is saying. He's saying, I don't just have compassion. I don't just feel for you, but I'm also gracious. He acts. He meets the need. He's the one in the superior place. He's God. But as God, the first thing about him is his fatherly grace and compassion. Feeling and action, both of these things together towards you and towards humanity. It's hard for us, right? That's just a point right there. It's hard for us, but that's a beautiful thing as we try to be like God, as we like to follow Jesus, to let those two things marry up. That it's not just every week I kind of come and get, feel this tender sympathy and compassion and then it doesn't do anything. But to start to move those things together, to be like God, I'm compassionate and gracious. And it's really tough for us to believe this, just the first point, that this is what God is like to you and me. It's the hardest thing to believe. It's the first thing and it's the hardest thing. I was watching Pierce Morgan and I think Franklin Graham was on it. And Franklin Graham, like all the Grahams, they always just bust out the gospel. You know, you could, he could be asking like, what do you think about Hurricane Katrina? Well, Jesus Christ died for your sins and salvation, right? He just launches into it. And talking about this to Pierce Morgan. And Pierce Morgan just kind of lets him go and he presents this beautiful vision of God sending his son because he loves the world and that he loved Pierce. And Pierce just kind of chuckles and he's like, yeah, I can understand that God loves you, Franklin, but I'm another story, right? 
which is true. We don't know if God likes Pierce Morgan. That's, I don't know if that's really a... Right? But that, that's really the essence for all of us, right? Does God really love me? Not, I've just, I've done too much stuff. If he knew, he does know. He sees my life. There's no way he loves me. And yet God goes, no. I feel for you, and I've acted on your behalf. This is the first thing. First thing out of his mouth. This isn't the last thing. Right? Typically, we think of the last thing first. Like, oh, yeah, he's going to judge me. Right? We're going to get to that. No, the first thing, the most important thing about him, he's compassionate and he's gracious. Some of you just need to hear that this morning. He feels for you and he's acted for you because he loves you. And he's seen everything that you've done. The second bit, he's slow to anger. Literally, the word is erikapayim. I just looked this up. I'm not that smart. I don't know Hebrew, but it sounds really good, right? So erikapayim. And this word literally means long of nostril. Yeah, you're like, this is the, the second thing that God says who he is. He goes, I am long of nostril. Whereas when you think about it, when you get angry, like it's got like the boiling point, right? And you're like, yeah, I'm kind of angry. I'm getting there. You get more engaged. Your eyes open up. But then when you get angry, what do you do? You flare your nostrils like, oh, it's on now, right? <laughs> if you think about it, that's what happens when you get angry. You flare the nostrils. You're ready to rumble. And God says, basically, I'm long of nostril. It takes me a long time to flare my nostrils. I am slow to the boiling point. I'm not like you. And I'm not like your dad who was quick to anger. Right? When I think about this, I think about dogs who've been beaten. And you come around them, and you make a little move, and what does a dog do? It kind of flinches, right? Like, oh, don't hit me. Don't hurt me. Because it's lived with someone who's quick to anger. A lot of times that's how we think of God. I think this is one of the most, we could spend a whole morning just on this. Right? The world thinks God is quick to anger, right? He's just quick to judge. He's going, no, what you need to know about me is I'm slow to anger. It takes me a long time. I'm going to deal with you. I'm going to put up with you for a long time. I am slow to anger. And we're running around like, oh, God's going to judge me, or he doesn't like me. We kind of have that cosmic reflex. And he's going, reflux? I don't think reflux is the right word. We have this cosmic acid reflux. No, that's not what I'm saying, right? Reflex. And God's saying, hey, it's all right, right? Calm down. Slow down. I love you. I'm slow to anger. I'm understanding. I'm not an angry dad, right? This is the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal sons, and the, the son who wastes everything, and this father who patiently waits it out, gives him everything, son just, just ruins it all, spends it all, acts like he doesn't love his dad, literally wishes him dead, and the father still stays there and welcomes him back after he's wasted all of his money. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He feels this compassion. This is who God is. God doesn't have a chip on his shoulder. He's not trying to prove himself. He does get angry. There are those points, but his anger and wrath is an expression of his justice. Because he cares, this is, this is Weizma, for what ought to be. And his justice is an expression of his love. He cares for the world. And so he wants to put it right. He, he cares about justice, what ought to be. 
If you think about the context of this passage, this is right after Israel. God has done all these amazing things and pulled them out of Egypt. Moses is on the mountain because they're worshiping this golden calf. He's getting the second tablets. This is the context of this verse. His people are worshiping other gods already. And he's saying, I'm slow to anger. This is who I am. Next, he says, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These two words, this steadfast love and faithfulness, they're this mutually illuminating pair that just kind of go together to give this one huge picture. Abounding in steadfast love. This word steadfast love is one of the the key characteristics of all the Bible. And it's the word hesed. This word love is hesed. Steadfast love. And it literally means a variety of things. It's just this giant or this full picture of what love is. It's unfailing love. It's kindness. It's mercy. It's covenant loyalty, like I'm going to stay with you kind of love. Right? It's primarily used to describe actions towards another person. It's not just an emotional disposition. Like I don't just, oh, I feel in love with you. No, it is an action. I'm going to prove that I love you. It's not primarily an emotional disposition. And it's used in relationship to covenants or promises that God makes. He is steadfast. He is loyal to these promises. It's a promise to stay and to be loving and to be kind and to be merciful even when it's difficult. This is the basis of marriage in sickness and in health. This is hesed. Not, Ken, always, Ken unpacks this way better than anyone else. Just going, it's not just this emotional response, right? Love sacrifices. Love does. This is the essence of hesed, faithful, reliable, steady, true. Actually, this word faithful, emmet, has this, this word. It's interesting. It's the word faithful, but it actually means true. And the way to think about it is when you talk about a friend, because we don't talk about fi- like true and faith always in, in the same sentence, right? But when you say, I have a true friend, Right, that's the essence. They're faithful to you. Someone who stays through everything. They're a loyal friend. You have this hesed and this emet working together. A reliability, a faithfulness, a steadiness. I think of my mother-in-law. She lives in Northern California. Super blessed that I love my in-laws. Doesn't always happen, but I love them. And I love going to visit. They're in the heart of wine country in Northern California. Just got back three weeks. One of my favorite things about going to visit my wife's family is Aunt Peg. Aunt Peg is 55 and has Down syndrome and lives with her parents. And she comes up to about right here and she's shaped like an egg, just perfectly shaped like an egg. And she is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And she doesn't do much at all. She likes to sit in her chair and she has like bulletin, like this papers, and she just kind of flips them. But when you come in the house and you meet her, when it's been a while, she comes up, she gives you a big hug, and she puts her ear right to my belly, and then she just doesn't let go because she likes the sound of my voice, not because she loves me, right? She, and she'll just wait till I start talking, and I'll go, Peggy, 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 Peggy. And she'll kind of laugh and kind of do this chuckle. And she has this just the most deep, crazy voice and the most sweetest words. So she says, honey, honey, but it sounds like, honey, 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 right? <laughs> And we pat each other's hands. She's got the giant Coke bottle glasses, right? And she is, she's living longer than she's supposed to. 
She's 55, Down syndrome, can't do anything. Why? Because my wife's mom, Susie, takes care of her little sister. 55 years. And we're talking every morning, waking her up, clothing her, bathing her, helping her walk down the stairs, fixing her lunch, fixing her breakfast, taking her to her place, picking her up, day in, day out, faithful. This is Hesed. Not like, oh, I love you so much. You're so cute and so cool. No. Hesed is, I'm going to stay with you till you die. And I'm going to be kind and merciful, even when you can't offer me anything. Now, she does offer a lot. But this is the essence of the word hesed. It's not love the way that we use it. It's a day in, day out, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to stay with you. So God says, I'm abounding, I'm overflowing with hesed. This is what I have for you. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm overflowing with this kind of love. It's the main theme of praise throughout all of the Psalms. 129 times people are praising God for his hesed. Or they're complaining to God and saying, where is your hesed? You said you were going to have hesed for me. And so there's this encouragement to cry out and say, where is this faithful love? Because it doesn't feel like it right now. And the Psalms say, cry out. Say, where are you? You promised this kind of love to me. And it doesn't feel like it. Which is this huge difference. This hesed love is not the way that we think of love. Ken, again, he unpacks this, I think, better than anyone else, right? We measure love out of intensity of longing or desire. I love that show. I love Breaking Bad, right? Well, I don't know if you love it, but you kind of have this love-hate relationship with it. I love that burrito. I love this. Based on longing or desire. And God measures love through the metric of sacrifice and faithfulness and loyalty. And Ken would say, what's fascinating, right, is this definition of love measured by intensity of longing or desire is actually the definition for lust, Right? I love that thing. It's just measured by your desire. I want that thing. And lust has kind of snuck into love. And love is really about sacrifice and faithfulness and kindness and loyalty. But this is who God is. He has hesed. He's abounding in hesed. This is what he calls us to, right? When he says, I love the world, love your neighbor, love them with this hesed kind of love. Not this fickle love but a love that gives, a love that sacrifices. So this is God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Then he says this word. He says, literally keeping this love for thousands of generations. So I just want to play with it real quick, right? If we said a generation is 100 years and God says, I'm going to keep this for thousands of generations, right? And a generation is 100 years. That's 100,000 years that he is keeping hesed. 100,000 years that he is keeping hesed to generation after generation after generation. For us, right, well you, they were talking about this um, earlier, these dudes that have stayed faithful, that have contended. When someone has been married for 30 years, it's like, holy smokes, what, what did you do? Did you live in separate houses? How did you make it happen? 
40 years, 50 years, that is unbelievable, right? How did you not kill each other? Like, we're amazed. It's not everyone. It's not like that. But marriage doesn't last, right? It's not, it's not a hard thing to see. People are surprised by it when someone chooses to stay with another person because it takes work. Someone says it's like a garden, right? You don't just go plant a garden and say, I hope you work, garden, you got to water it. You got to till the soil. You got you to care for it. You got to tend it. You got to show that garden has it. It's the same thing with your marriage. You have to be faithful. You have to be in it every day, tending this thing, being in it. And God is saying, I am this way for thousands of generations. We'll all be gone in a couple years 50, 60 years, 30 years, some of you shorter. And another generation will be here, and God will be faithful to them. He shows steadfast love for thousands of generations. This faithful love. We have a tough time staying with one person, and God stays with thousands of generations caring for them. And it should beg the question, how could God do this? In all the injustice of the world, and even the injustice of our own hearts, how could God stay faithful to us? It begs the question. And there's really only way to stay in relationship with someone that long. You have to be slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness. You have to be willing to forgive each other. And this is the next part of the verse. He stays faithful to thousands of generations because it's in his nature to be forgiving. It's part of who he is. He keeps hesed by forgiving sin. Right? So that's the next part. It's really small up here, but it says forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. We're almost done. The first word, iniquity, has the sense of turning from the straight path to a crooked path, or to have crooked behavior, to choose to be crooked, to be morally crooked, moral misdeeds in any type of way. This is iniquity. Like, you could just look at someone and go, yeah, they just choose to be dirty. They just choose to be crooked. That's the first word. The second word denotes this breach of relationship, whether it's a marriage or a civil relationship or a religious covenant. It denotes this break between two parties. You break the law. In relationship with the state, you agree to act a certain way, and you say, you know what, I'm going to break that. I'm not going to act in this way. That's where you get the word misdemeanors, right? You're breaking law. You're breaking relationship. And the third means just literally to miss the mark, just to fail, to not measure up, failing to reach the goal. And the three are used to cover the whole range in the Hebrew language of just brokenness. Every single part of brokenness that you can think, that holistic picture, the whole range, he forgives this brokenness. And the idea of forgiveness, the word forgiveness literally means to lift up and to carry away. He's going to lift up all the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of our lives, the sin, the iniquity, the transgressions, everything. He's going to lift it up and he's going to carry it away. He's going to remove the brokenness out of our lives and out of the world. Some would say right here, this is the climax of this present proclamation. That he demonstrates his compassion and grace and patience, long-suffering and mercy and faithfulness by taking away brokenness, perversion, and rebellion, lifting it away, 
and casting it into the sea. It's the act of cleansing. It's the act of healing. This is the revelation of Jesus. So when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, the iniquity, the brokenness of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who will take away, who will forgive the brokenness of the world. Jesus enters the brokenness of the world and carries it away. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is who God says he is. He's going to enter our world and forgive sin, iniquity, and transgression. He's going to heal the world and forgive sin. So I'm having this conversation with my neighbor. And we, we really do. We're in the backyard. We cover the whole range from Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot, Abraham, like all these caricatures. And we get to the end of the night, and I kind of feel like the conversation hasn't really gone a lot of places. It feels like, man, I've just been trying to tread water, do as best as I can. And she says this. She turns, she goes, in the end, she goes, this is what I think. She has a a year and a half old son. She says, If, if somehow, some way, I lost my son, and she knocks on wood, if my son died, if something happened to him, there isn't a religion on the face of the planet that I wouldn't walk away from. In the face of that kind of suffering, that kind of tragedy, I'd walk away from anything. I don't think I could stay, you know, if I had to try and like, muster it up, I lean towards a, a Hindu type of faith that says it's karma and it's just my destiny and maybe something good will happen from it later. But I would probably walk away. And I said, I go, well, what's the, what's the Christian story in this moment if your son dies? Like, what's the story of, of the, what the Christians would say? She goes, well, yeah, if he died, probably because I did something bad. And I'm like, that's not what we believe. That's not who God is. I go, what's the story of Jesus? She goes, God died to take away the sins of the world. I go, I know, but what's the story? Yeah, Jesus died on the cross for sins. I go, I know, but what's the story? She goes, I don't know. I go, it's a father losing his son. It's a father losing his son to the brokenness of the world, the darkness of the world, so that he could heal it, so that death, so that we can know that death isn't even the end. Suffering and tragedy isn't the end. He's going to heal it. He's going to redeem it. That's the story. It's the incarnation. It's God becoming like us. He knows what it's like to lose a son, so you could even face that. And he gave him up so that he could heal the brokenness of the world. And she goes, oh, bleep. She goes, that's, that's powerful stuff. I'm like, yeah, it's powerful stuff. That's the real deal. That's who God is. That's who Jesus is. Your caricature has to be readjusted. You can face anything when you believe in this Yahweh God. He is a God who forgives, who takes up, literally lifts the brokenness and carries it out of the world. It's beautiful because we like the idea that God forgives us, 
taking our sin, but for some reason we like to live with our shame. Now, I, I want to feel bad about what I did. Don't take my shame. And he goes, no, I'm lifting it all and I'm carrying it away. I'm a God who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. But what about this last part? We're running out of time. Because right? we all know we're getting to the last part, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Finally, yeah, right? What about that? Where's the line in the sand? And it's important just to notice that this is like really lopsided. God is going, I'm good, 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 I'm really good, but I'm not going to clear the guilty. And in our minds, it's like, he's ready to get me, 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 maybe he likes me, right? He's going, you got to adjust that. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Literally visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Which sounds really bad, right? You're like, that sounds terrible. All my fears are true. He's going to punish my kids for what I've done. That's what it says. That's, at first reading, that's what it sounds like. This is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean this. Because it sounds like God will hold children responsible for the sins of the fathers and the, the mothers at an initial read-through. It's this Hebrew idiom that shows up throughout the Bible. And God actually confronts that idea. He's going, no. Right? I don't visit the children for the father. I don't hold the children responsible for the father's sins. Because there's a time where this truth, this saying, is actually spreading throughout all Israel. And so God says, stop. Literally says, stop saying this. Here's, I have the verse right here. Ezekiel 18.2, 18, he confronts this idea. It's kind of an odd little saying. He says this. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And that, that literally is a little saying that's going like the children are, are going to be held responsible for the mother's and father's sin. Kids are responsible. He's saying, why are you saying this? What do you mean? And God says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. I love that. Like, seriously, shut your mouth. Stop saying that. It's a place in the Bible where he's going, you remember this saying? It's not what I, it's not what I want at all. Stop saying it. I wish that happened more, like this day and age. Someone would be like, this is who God is like. He's going, no, that's actually, don't ever say that again. That's not what I'm like. If you go on, he says, for everyone belongs to me, the parents as well as the child. They both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who, who will die. They both, individually, they each will be held accountable for their own life. That sounds kind of harsh. This is how the passage finishes. You can go to Ezekiel 18.21. This is how it finishes. Just soak in this one. This is where he leaves this passage. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Just stop right there. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. We do. We like that. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. His heart is that they would turn. That's what he hopes for. That's what pleases him. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? 
For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. He's not some sadistic being that just likes to roast people over the fire if they don't love him. The most common phrase we have with repent, turn, turn or burn, right? That's how people think of the Christian God, turn or burn. What does scripture say right here? Turn and live. Turn and live. Repent and live. And so he clarifies, it says, each person is responsible for their own life, and if you refuse to repent, you will be held accountable. But he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's hard because this is this, this faith has been presented this way for so long. Because it's an easy way to present the faith. Like, hey, believe in him or burn. And the way the reason that Christianity gets presented this way is because it gets a response. It scares people. Where are you gonna go tonight if you die? You wanna burn forever? Right, that's how it got told to me and to thousands of other kids. And that's emotionalism. I'm not saying there isn't a hell, but this isn't what God's saying. He's saying repent and live. That's a harder statement. Because you can just dismiss people. You say, you know, turn or burn. So just make the decision. It's much harder to say turn, and I'm going to teach you how to follow God and, and follow Christ for the flourishing of all life. That's intensive. That's discipleship. The story isn't just about God saving us from sin, but saving us from sin to the work of restoring heaven and earth. Jesus prayed when he taught us how to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth, on bend, in bend as it is in heaven, that that's your prayer. On earth as it is in heaven, repent and live. He takes no pleasure or joy in the death of the wicked. So what does this little phrase mean? We're running out of time, I know. What does this mean? The third and fourth generation stuff, right? Those who refuse to repent will be held responsible, but those who refuse to repent will not be cleared. There is a way to be cleared, but you don't have to accept it. By no means will he clear the guilty. And so this third and fourth generational talk here, what he's saying is this. Sin will affect others, the next generation. God is not keeping kids responsible for the parents' sin, but he also isn't going to remove the natural consequences of sin that affects others. He doesn't erase the consequences of sin. When you choose to be a meth addict and a dad or a mom, your kid feels the effects of that. The next generation will feel the effect of that. And he's saying, this is the reality of sin. I'm not going to hold the kids responsible, but they will be affected. The consequences will reach them. Our sin affects people, and that's a reality. And it's a sad reality that kids could be born into situations like that. This is what he's saying. The overarching point of this passage as we, as we wrap it up is this. That God says, even when you look at this and go like, I'm keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations and yet the third and fourth will feel the effects of sin. It's this idea of going, the scales are tipping towards the mercy and love and compassion of who God is. This is who God is. 
His forgiveness extends to 100,000 generations. It's what he loves and it's what he desires for us to repent and to live. It's what brings him joy. He stands ready to forgive, not ready to destroy. He is Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Micah sums it up well. And this is what we'll finish right here. Micah 7.18 says this, Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgiveness, the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight, delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged an oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Our response is, who is like you? This is unbelievable that God delights to show mercy to people. Who is like that? Who is a God like that? And so Moses' response, as God passes over, this is his response. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stubborn people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. It's this full-fledged, just he bows and worships, he says, just take us, use us. Come into our midst, I want you. It's this personal relationship. It's not this like distant God. When you see God for all that he is, the response is always just thankfulness and worship. And this is what God is after on Sundays, throughout the week. My son, so this happened, I'll finish here. I know I said that already. doesn't matter, Ken goes way long. When he came to my church, it was like an hour and a half. Someone actually walked out and was like, oh gosh, like that. I'm like, oh wow, I don't feel so bad anymore. So I bring Ken every once in a while just to extend the patience of the people. Anyways, <laughs> strike that from the podcast. Um, my son is writhing in pain, teething. I feel bad. Seven months. Um, if they smile, you think it's the greatest thing in the world. If they like reach out and grab something, you're like, he's a genius. Oh my gosh, look at this. He's grabbing something. Every little move, it's like, what does that mean? That is amazing. So he's writhing in pain. He's crying. I come home. I see him. My wife's been with him all day. I go, we should give him some Orgel. So he lays down. And you know kids, they always just fight you, whether it's changing a diaper or getting clothes. It's like the worst thing in the world, right? You're like, ah, no. And he always does that. If you want to stick something in his mouth, it's like, no way. You're just karate chopping for like an hour. But he's so, he's just hurting that he just lays on the bed. And I take the Orgel and I put it on his tooth and it's like a direct hit. It's not like he eats it first, right? I just go, boom, right on it. I'm like, yes, direct hit. And I'm like, I've never actually tried this. So I put it, and I put it in my tooth. And I'm like, oh, that actually numbs really fast, right? Well, he calms down, and I pick him up, and I walk out of the room, and I turn the corner, and I'm like, yeah, I think that's what he needed. And he's such a squirmy little guy, but he's staring right at me. And I turn at him, and he's got the little tears, you know, it just makes you want to die. And he's just staring at me, which kids never just stop and stare. 
And he takes his little finger and he reaches out and he touches my lip like that. And then he leans forward with the open mouth and just goes, uh, like that, right on my mouth. And I'm like, I look at my wife, I'm like, I, thi- I think he's trying to tell me something, right? I think he just kissed me. I think he understands what I just did. And we're like, I think that. And then like we're doing like, this is amazing. He does it and he takes his little finger and he goes right to my, my lip and he touches it. And then he reaches and he puts his mouth. And I'm like, I, just, I started crying. And she starts crying. I'm like, he understands what we're doing. He's a real person. <laughs> He's saying thank you. Nothing in the world has filled my heart like that moment. That's a first for me. I'm going like, this is unbelievable. Nothing. And I think this is what we have to offer God. When we see that he is compassionate and gracious, that he's met us in Christ, he's given us everything, that what our response is just to say thanks, and I think it moves his heart. He has this fatherly heart. And so we just worship, we say thank you. And this is what he wants for us to acknowledge him, to worship and to say, let's be in relation, come into my midst. Let's be together. I want to be your God. I want to be in relationship with you. I hope you can hear that this morning, wherever you're at, that he's lifting your sins, that he wants to be in relationship. Invite him into your midst. Say, take me as your inheritance and use me. Because Yahweh is a good, good God. Let's pray. God, as your people, we stop and we say thank you. We're sorry for the caricatures that we believe in our hearts, the stubbornness. We're sorry for our sins, our brokenness. We're so grateful that you're a God that is gracious and compassionate like a father. We stop in these moments to worship you, to turn our eyes to you, just acknowledge you at the beginning of our week and to say that you've been good to us and to say thank you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.